0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio discussed the crisis in urban housing, discussed the relationship between walking and art, and learned about the challenges facing urban cyclists. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for May 25, 2018. Buildings on Air spoke with Kate Wagner from McMansion Hell about the crisis facing urban housing. Wagner spoke about the logical fallacy behind the idea that if something is old, it is innately better, the quote-unquote ugly facades of low-income housing, and the good that unpleasant architecture can bring. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m.
1: Hey, Kate, how's it going?
2: It's good. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. It's so good to hear you. Friend of the show. This is your second Buildings on Air appearance. Yes. (laughs) Well, we're super happy to have you back. And um, uh, I just want to say this article in Common Edge is totally fantastic. Um, uh, Again, it's called Architecture, Aesthetic Moralism and the Crisis of Urban Housing. Um, And so that's that's the topic of conversation. I'm sure we'll go off on tangents and talk about other things. Um, (laughs) But before we launch into it, how, how are things going?
2: Uh, things are going good. I am about to give my final thesis defense on Monday, so hopefully that goes well and I can graduate. Awesome.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, sending you good vibes through the uh, FM airwaves. <laughs>
3: thank
1: you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, this article, uh, it's what what is maybe maybe we can start by kind of defining aesthetic moralism. Um, I think, or uh, and and maybe you can tell us about aesthetic moralism and kind of what prompted you to uh, write the piece.
2: Sure. So this was a concept that I first heard about in a paper that I read about, uh, actually a sound studies paper and had nothing to do with architecture, about uh, F. Murray Schaefer's book, The Soundscape, which is really a famous book in sound studies. It's kind of one of the foundational texts of that field. And basically, this article argued that uh, in Schaefer's book, he places an emphasis on natural sounds as being somehow moral or better than the sounds made by human beings. And the person writing the paper, I I can't remember who it was at this point, took issue with that and said, well, really, amongst human beings... the sounds that we generate are, you know, life-affirming. I mean, you're talking about speech and music and, you know, other things that are generally criminalized in the law as being noise. Yeah. You know, people get punished for being too loud and people get punished for playing music too loud when the things that are really, you know, terrible, that really, you know, hurt the world are things like traffic or, uh, you know, heavy machinery, things that do uh, damage to, you know, working people and people just uh, living a life in the ambient city. Um, Oh, actually, I do know the name. This is actually a book and not a paper. Uh, The book is... uh, Let's see. I have it up here. It is Beyond Unwanted Sound by Marie Thompson is the name of the book. It's a really great book. Um, But anyway, so I was thinking about this uh, idea of aesthetic moralism, which basically is the idea that one type of art or thing that is produced is inherently moral or better than other types of art or things that are produced. Uh, and this is kind of like a logical fallacy, really, yeah. that the idea that because something, you know, for this is a really common one, but because something is old means that it's somehow better than something that is new, when the reality is is that, like, new buildings for the most part are much more, you know, eco-friendly and uh, generally more efficient than older buildings that are retrofitted. Um, so if you wanted to make an ecological argument, you can say that that, you know, his, uh, aesthetic moralism is invalidated be- because of by, you know, ecological means. Sure. But mostly people are, are overhyping a certain aesthetic uh, or they are. Um, so in the case that I used, you know, people make fun of these uh, kind of blocky, dull apartment buildings. Uh as being you know, either signifiers of gentrification or as just being ugly and terrible, when a lot of the times, like the housing that is built by HUD, uh, is in this form because it conforms to established urban design guidelines. Right. So, um, you know, design review boards have very specific uh, qualities that they look for in new buildings, and these are just like the fast-track easiest way to pass those design review boards uh hearings I guess. Yeah. So, you know, uh so it's kind of funny to me that like these things are really like, terrible and bad, but like most of them are actually, you know, for senior housing or for low income housing uh or the um, what I should say is that like a lot of the buildings built for those purposes look like this. Right. And so by saying that these are all the evil ugly buildings of gentrification invalidates the good that a sometimes unpleasant architectural style can bring. Um, it's, you know, so I think that we have to look at things, you know, at least materially to be able to, to say, like, well, what is good and what is bad? And we can't just look at it from, like, the point of view of just pure, like, aesthetic justification. Right. Because, I mean, of course, people are going to say that, like, you know, the apartment bu- building by, like... Daniel Burnham or whatever is going to be like the best building ever, and like the new (laughs) building by SOM is inferior or something. You know, this is like the old and the new, and we romanticize the old, or sometimes we romanticize the new as well. Right. Um. But it's it's it, it goes deeper than that.
1: Yeah, and you know, maybe just for listeners, I'll, I'll I think the the cover image of, of your Common Edge piece is terrific, uh, a, a kind of summation of of these types of projects. And um, uh, listeners in Chicago will probably be, in most places, will be able to conjure uh, some of them to mind. They, yeah, they're they're usually, you know, four, five, six story kind of mixed use buildings where they might have a couple storefronts on the bottom, um, and then the rest of it is is apartments and and uh they're usually blocky they have several different materials going on in the facade the building form is usually very uh lightly articulated um and uh but but mostly it's the kind of change in materials and this kind of collagey sort of manner um that makes it look uh, i don't know uh uh I don't know. It's it's its main aesthetic signifier to my mind. Uh it's the thing that makes it look special because the rest of the building is is sort of very cheaply made and so they just kind of uh uh, uh decoupage materials on the outside um, yeah. uh, to 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 give it give it some some look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think it's interesting. Just you know, this is something that we've been on about in in the show, and I know that you and I have talked quite a bit about. Um, but just trying to divorce the the architectural aesthetic from its political and economic effects, and say that like, hey, they're related here, but they're they're not the same thing. And and to think that is, is a kind of uh, is a kind of hubris. And I, and I think it's interesting, uh, you know, as a case in point, to say that like, hey, this is a singular kind of aesthetic that gets applied applied to if you really think about it buildings of a variety of types but also interestingly is kind of operationalized by NIMBYs and EMBs, the right and the left in particular ways. Yeah.
2: I think that like one of the main arguments that I make in the piece is to say that you know it's fine if you don't like the style. I mean you and I personally have talked about this style of building. Uh, you you and uh Marianella call it uh, you know sketchup contemporary. <laughs> right you know i call it developer chic like everybody in architecture or around architecture has some kind of pejorative for this 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 style and you know that's all well and good like that's a way of describe pejoratives are just ways of you know this is of describing things in a way that becomes recognizable through humor
3: right
2: uh and so i think that uh you know when i say developer chic most people like have immediately have an idea of like <laughs> what it is i'm talking about yeah. uh but i think that you know to politicize an aesthetic is a very risky thing to do. Um, to politicize an aesthetic can lead to, of course, historically disastrous consequences, like the politicization of classicism by fascist regimes, uh, which, of course, is unfair to, to classicism. The Greeks had no idea that Albert Speer was going to be an architect. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I yeah. think that, you know, the politicization of this style is, is something that I think that exposes more a kind of discourse between, I guess, YIMBYs, NIMBYs, and I guess Bimbis or the left or whatever, because, I mean, leftist perspectives on the housing crisis and what the solutions are are, are actually pretty nuanced and buried. I can't just say that, like, uh, so I, I, I define the left pretty broadly here mm. uh, as kind of like this kind of nebulous uh, group that uh, basically... Traces between all three of these things, which I think, honestly, I think that the NIMBY and NIMBY uh, dichotomy is like it's a false. I think it's a false dialectic. I th- don't think that like NIMBY or public housing in my backyard is a, is the synthesis of this false dialectic, because I mean, I think that the politics of this goes outside of just the supply and demand question. Right. Um, but my my opinion is so that I think that by getting into these aesthetic arguments by Being able, by saying that, like, these are ugly and stupid and we hate them, it hurts actually both sides of this debate. The only side it doesn't hurt is, like, the property-owning NIMBY class, (laughs) who, of course, we all know and love from community meetings where the shadow of this apartment building that is two stories tall is going to kill my zucchini. Uh, I mean, they're basically the the almost, like, -like, uh, parody-like supervillain baby boomer wasp people who own property and do not want their property values to go down. That is definitely a class interest and it is something that is well known and well defined to, to both people on the right and the left. Yeah. And in the middle. Yeah. And so I think that it by having this discussion about aesthetics it uh, really you're playing into the favor of like those people.
0: Bad at Sports spoke to Lori Waxman, author of Keep Walking. Waxman spoke about how the flaneurs influenced surrealism in the Fluxus movement. Waxman argues that the lengthy history of artists walking and observing their surroundings, particularly in Paris, led to concrete conceptual art movements in our present day. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11
4: AM.
5: And we are happily joined in the studio by Lori Waxman. Lori, welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Thanks, Brian. so, rumor has it you wrote a
4: book. <laughs> <laughs> Those are just nasty rumors. <laughs> well, yeah, what? Yeah. R- kind of I'm rumor. looking at a
5: physical object that looks like a book.
4: I know it, they're really easy to fake these days. <laughs> <laughs>
6: it's like actually a Brandon Alvendia edition, and the inside is all right. is all empty Those like, or Trump folders or it's with
5: a, like white uh, copy paper just filling them or an iPad cover. Mm. Mm.
6: Did you hear that in mm. Iran they like uh, incinerated like a fake copy of the nuclear deal?
5: Oh, I thought they would do that to the art of the deal.
6: <laughs> that was what actually it was, that they were right. burning. But then they were like, JK.
5: We're going to do this with Europe.
6: Yeah. And China.
5: Yeah. Like the forward-thinking world. Um, Let's talk about a book we we're not going to burn. That book that we're going to exalt. Uh, yes. Maybe even take with us on a meandering journey on foot.
4: <laughs> you mean you want
5: to uh, go for a walk? Yeah, maybe we go for a walk. We're a little, unfortunately, tied to the the physical reality of this radio station for the next 59 minutes. Uh, but in anticipation of that walk, maybe we could talk about walking and its relationship to art
4: historically or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of prepared to do that.
5: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so your book is Keep Walking Intently. Um, the
6: ambulatory art of the surrealist, the situationist, international, and fluxus.
5: So serious good chunk of conceptual art history right there. Uh, and this was just published.
4: Yeah. Uh, in two thousand like at the end of 2017 in okay. the rest of the world, but much more <laughs> recently in America, because for some reason books take longer to get here.
5: We're behind the times, but we're up to date now. Um, so let us into the book. What is why walk intently? Why are we in Yeah? What are, what's it about?
4: What's walking and art <laughs> got to do with each other? Yeah. Um, so what this book tries to do is it tries to make a fairly conventional history, art history, for a lot of contemporary practices that will be much more familiar to everyone if you think about walking in art. So who do you think about when you think about walking in art? You think about Frances Elise or you think about Janet Cardiff. And it's like you you're think, reading my mind. Yeah, right? And they're amazing. And I would love to have written a book about them. But this began as a PhD thesis. And you can't write a PhD thesis about Janet Cardiff or Francis Ellis. It's too new. There's no history there. So instead, I tried to write the history that gets us up to that point. Because there is actually an amazing history of art and walking coming together in these revolutionary movements uh, of the 20th century, um, primarily the Surrealists, the Situationists, and fluxes, Um and they're all pretty well-known, but no one's ever really focused on walking in particular and why it was actually so central to each of those three movements. So that's what I do.
6: I. <laughs> there you go, that was a perfect summation of the book, thank you. No problem. <laughs> I, so that was like my final question, was like what is the trajectory of the walking? Where does it get us? And you already answered that for us, so maybe we should go backwards. Um, and I think – well, so you kind of outlined that you are, go through the surrealists, the situationists, and Fluxus. And I think it's um, funny that you talked about it as a conventional history because it is very legible, the book, reading it. And I appreciated that as I moved through it so that I my brain could actually create questions around it. And one of the questions that I had around it was – I was very interested in your conversation about the situation is that you kind of are talking about them as artists and then not artists. And, uh, and I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about them and the lecherous international. And if they're not artists, then why are they in the book? And if they are artists, are they not political? Um, and then I have like a follow up question. Okay, so all right, so
4: you're jumping us right into the middle of yeah. the book, which is totally fine, because uh, the whole middle part is about the Situationist International. Well, in the beginning part, was so many dudes, so I just had to... it, the whole book is a lot of dudes, it's... and I'm sorry about that. Um, and it's why like I got really into Yoko Ono in the third part of the book. <laughs> um, but the so the second part of the book, which is about the Situationists, and also, very much about the lettrists who the Situationists were partly before they were Situationists. Um, it's a very unconventional take on the Situationists in the sense that most people who dig the Situationists love Guy Debord and yeah. they love, they're really into May 68 and how the Situationists were deeply involved in that. And they're really into the second half of the Situationist history. I don't do any of that. I actually am not super into Guy Debord, and <laughs> I'm really into what they were doing before they were situationists, when they were like kind of bohemian louts.
5: Pre-situational.
4: Yeah. Um, before 1957, they were the Lettrists, And they they got smashed, and they went wandering and got lost in Paris, and they didn't have a lot of money, and they didn't work a lot, and they were anti-work. And they, I mean, they, they did what a lot of people do, only they ultimately theorized it into something called the dérive and had a lot of ideas um, that could be achieved through walking the city as a way of changing the city.
5: That sounds fantastic. I want to, I guess, I'm going to be a neo lecher and get drunk and watch around, wander around Paris. That sounds fantastic.
4: Well, and I think...
6: Uh, How does that
5: not work? Yeah. That sounds like work. That Well,
6: yeah. they, that was what yeah. I was... It's funny because you talk about how they're so interested in play, and I guess my exposure to them is like a kind of May 68 key spectacle world, and I don't really think about them as playing. And so to read about that was surprising, but maybe that's the space of art for them.
4: I mean, the idea of thinking about them through play comes from them. Um, De Boer calls the derive playful constructive behavior, and they grounded a lot of their ideas in the, the writings of Johann Hausinger, which I think I'm pronouncing all right because I, I once listened to a YouTube pronunciation of his name. <laughs> um, it's H U I Z I N G A. Anyway. Um, He was a cultural historian, Dutch, and he wrote a very important book called Homo Ludens, which is about play and game playing as being central to all these different cultures, human cultures across time. Um, And the situation is were interested in this, but they wanted to be a little bit more revolutionary and not have the game playing be separate from life. So it's not that like we go about daily life and then we take a break and we go and play games as adults. It could be, you could just think of sports. That's an obvious one. Um,
6: really? Yeah. I mean, we're kind of bad at sports, but we'll we'll let it slide.
4: But you're not D- actually mean, all really. Just
5: because we're bad doesn't mean we aren't trying. You know, participants at times.
4: I know some of you are sports fans. I won't say who. <laughs>
6: looking very strongly at Blink member in the studio. (laughs) Uh,
4: So what what they were interested in was having play be a component of everyday life. So you should not have to have your real life and then your play as separate from it, but everyday life should be in and of itself playful.
6: So for them, kind of playing is like drifting, writing, (laughs) and like theorizing.
4: It's like um, not having to go to work and instead like thinking about the city as your playground um, and walking through it as a way of understanding how it works but also how you might want to change it and how the city is really different from what you see on the map and how architecture could be more exciting and inspiring and coming up with crazy ideas like that all the lights should be on switches. Um, the streetlights should be on switches so that you can actually create different atmospheres and have more control over the environment.
5: Like Dumbledore. <laughs> right? He's got the, Dumbledore,
4: well, you know, is, it's is like very the only SI.
5: Yeah, but absolutely. Is and he only, SI only,
6: or is he surrealist? Because I read in the book that the SIs rejected the kind of magicalness of the surrealists.
4: Mm. Yeah, I mean, they're not at all into the unconscious and the subconscious and they're, chance. And, they're
6: like in everyday life.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it's not dream space. It's reality. We want the dream in reality, not the enmeshing of the two.
6: So get another Dumbledore
5: reference. He's the only person I know who could turn off streetlights.
4: No, no. There's a a contemporary artist who actually did it. Oh, Um, really? This guy, Leopold Kessler. Um, Sometime around the last decade could be as early as 2003 I can't remember in Paris he hacked into the electrical system on a street in Paris and he put all of the street lamps on switches and then he gave remotes to the people who (laughs) lived on the street so that they could control their own lighting system
6: that kind of reminds me of when I was in college and one of my friends uh, found the mainframe for the lights public lights at the school and then would intermittently turn them off I'm going to let him know that this was a situationist project well, <laughs> in retrospect. It
4: was a situationist idea that they never did, and then someone did it 50 years later.
6: Actually realized it. Well, and I think that kind of – so I have like – as I was reading this book, I had all these very random questions, which I guess is why I'm just jumping around in time. But at least in the first two movements, there seems like a a very kind of static membership like you refer to this membership, like, oh, he was a member, he was briefly a member, and maybe Leopold is a, like, future member. And I was curious if you, like, do you know, like, how do you become a member? Do you just, walk of a surrealist movement, or of any movement? Because this is kind of a question I have for today artists, too, Mm -hmm. in thinking about kind of where you end up and where the kind of trajectory goes is I've, maybe lament that we don't have these affiliations. You want to know where
5: the formal registry was.
4: Yeah. Who's writing the manifestos today? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Me. That no. <laughs> but this is this is really interesting. This is yeah. the partly why uh, I could write this book and it it's sort of there's like a for me anyway satisfying tidiness to it is this these are modern mo- movements. Not Fluxus. Fluxus is like starts to play with gets it all messy this yeah. like group membership stuff. Um But there was a leader of the Surrealist movement, André Breton, he wrote a manifesto and he kept a membership list and you were in or you were out and then you were in again and then you were out again. And it didn't mean you no longer fraternized, um, but there was this sort of uh, intense leadership insanity um, of keeping it tight and constantly redefining it and having it be like rule based.
7: Matters, Kyle
8: Fresh towel? Oh, uh... Yes. Thank you. Are you having a good night? I'm just on a date with a guy who makes me so nervous. Don't be. You look great. You want a cigarette? Calm me down a little? I don't smoke. Well, how about something stronger? What? Yeah, most of this mouthwash is, like, 60 proof. Um, I think I'm probably good. Sprints of perfume? You don't want him smelling this flop sweat you got going on. No, thank you- Wha-what the- Oh, wow. That's a nice scent. Thank you. It was not cheap.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Well,
8: see ya. Oh, it was my mother's favorite. I... bought it to see if she would respond to anything from the coma. Oh my god. Did it work? You know, we're, uh, we're taking it one day at a time. You
7: poor dear. Here.
8: Thank you so much, Miss. Ah, yeah, yeah.
7: oh, yeah. oh, geez. You know, I, I didn't know your mom was dead or something. <laughs>
8: well, if you see her, don't tell her I said that. She'd huh? kill me. What's going on, Kyle?
7: When I said I wanted to see what you do for a living, I was hoping that maybe I'd be able to do a ride-along a shadow you or something. Well,
8: you obviously can't come in here. You're a guy.
7: But, well, how about I take the men's room and diversify the Diversi- stuff? Diversify?
8: taught you that? Have you been reading Men's Health again?
7: Ah, ah, come on. Why don't you just set up shop outside between the bathrooms? You can get both dudes and dudettes.
8: There is a level of personal service required for these fat donations? Right, but I got a boat tie. I and... gotta get something to eat, Kyle. Ah. Why don't you float the mop as we
7: agree? But I want to attend to the patrons of the bathroom. The mop
8: and the out-of-service signs ah, are in the utility geez, closet over there. Me, five no. minutes to mop, five minutes to dry. Done. Right. Welcome to the ladies' room. Right. Here. Yes.
7: Forget this. Time to diversify. Oh my gosh! Hello. Um, uh,
8: wrong bathroom.
7: So sorry. Nope. By all means, this is the right bathroom. Uh, what are you doing in here? That's okay. I'm the bathroom attendant. So when you're done washing your hands, you come over to me. I give you a piece of gum. I got a spray of cologne for you. I got some finger sandwiches. I mean I even got some hummus. Look at the spread. Okay.
8: Can you leave?
7: Now you see this is a gender diversified bathroom. Uh yeah, so okay. basically it Okay, cool. Hey, uh, yeah, alright, I got my first customer. Get this ready here. Got the carrots. The crackers. Hello there, El Capitan.
9: Uh, yeah, no, I just, I just gotta use the
7: sink. Having a rough night?
9: <sighs> you, you could say that.
7: Oh, you're looking sharp there, Cap.
9: Yeah, there's this girl I'm on, I'm on a date with, and I I think I like her, and I'm trying to figure out how to tell her, and I don't know what she's going to say. Take a minute,
7: have a smoke, calm down. Yeah, yeah, thanks, I just need a minute. This'll do it. What? <laughs> Kyle,
8: what are you doing? Why is the men's room out of service? This
7: is a gender-diversified co-ed bathroom.
8: This is not a good idea.
7: Why are you so backwards thinking, Jess? Yeah.
8: This particular toilet is not legally equipped for co-ed occupancy, and I don't think we, as extra-legal restroom attendants, get to make that call. Is
10: there a party out here? Yeah, grab
8: a sandwich. L- Laura? James? D- did you? That was you? I- You were talking about me? Uh, I think you're a babe. <laughs> I-, I really like you. Ugh. Thank God there's plenty of places to barf in here. What a sappy moment. Let's get out of this bathroom.
7: Thanks for the smoke. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. We should have got a bigger tip. No,
8: I can't believe that girl didn't wash her hands.
11: This week on The Trump Diaries. Trump ramps up his war against Mueller as the probe passes its one year anniversary. Cohen and Trump Jr. solicited help from Middle Eastern nations. Trump tries to raise rates on Amazon and fails. North Korean and Chinese deals seem in disarray, and the taxi king flips. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 483, May 17th. Today is the one year anniversary of the appointment of Robert Mueller as special counsel investigating allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, as well as other matters and misdemeanors. Trump offered congratulations to America on, quote, the greatest witch hunt in American history. Trump then charged that the FBI had spied on his campaign with an embedded informant, which makes the Russia investigation bigger than Watergate. He is correct on the latter part. Many observers feel this investigation is a modern day Watergate. Trump also claimed he had the quote, most successful first 17 month administration in US history, overcome a disgusting, illegal and unwarranted witch hunt and noted there is still no collusion and no obstruction. The only collusion was that done by Democrats who were unable to win an election despite spending far more money. In related news, Paul Manafort's former son-in-law, Jeffrey Yohai has flipped and is now assisting the Justice Department. Yohai was a business partner of Manafort's but divorced Manafort's daughter in August. And the senate intelligence committee agreed that russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election in order to help trump and hurt hillary clinton the senate committee's bipartisan conclusion contradicts republicans in the house intelligence committee republican richard burr said quote there is no doubt that russia undertook an unprecedented effort to interfere with our elections that committee also released 2,500 pages of transcripts that found the Trump campaign was, quote, willing to accept Russian assistance. They found evidence of multiple contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia, including offers of assistance and purported overtures from Vladimir Putin. The transcripts also reveal that Donald Trump Jr., who met with a Kremlin-connected lawyer, made calls to a blocked number before and after the meeting, calls thought to be made to Trump. Legal experts warn the transcripts may prove Trump Jr. broke federal law. Rudy Giuliani said that Robert Mueller told him they can't indict a president. If true, and Mueller has not commented, the conclusion is likely based on Justice Department guidelines. And Michael Cohen's bank information was leaked by a whistleblower who thought the evidence was being illegally withheld from the FBI. Two suspicious activity reports filed by Cohen's bank were missing from a database managed by the Treasury Department. Quote, I have never seen something pulled off the system, an official told The New Yorker. That system is a safeguard for the bank. It is a stockpile of information. When something's not there that should be, I immediately became concerned. Day 484, May 18th. Michael Cohen is alleged to have solicited one million dollars from the nation of Qatar in an attempt to peddle influence with the Trump administration. In related news, Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner is near a deal that would see the Qataris bail his family out of a deeply troubled New York state real estate investment. Qatar has been sidelined under the Trump administration in favor of rival Saudi Arabia. Trump will withhold federal funding for family planning clinics that provide abortions or refer patients to places that perform them. The rule, a direct shot at Planned Parenthood, is resurrecting a Reagan era Title X policy that requires abortion services to have separate personnel and a bright line of physical separation from other family planning services. Trump has acknowledged meeting with Planned Parenthood and offering them more federal funds if they stop providing abortions. Planned Parenthood refused. They say they will sue. Trump apparently pressured the Postmaster General to double the rate Amazon pays that service. Postmaster General Megan Brennan has attempted to explain multiple times to Trump that the rates are bound by contracts and must be reviewed by a regulatory commission. The pressure invariably comes after the Washington Post, which is owned by Amazon's Jeff Bezos, writes a negative article about Trump. And the Senate confirmed Gina Haspel as the next CIA director approving her nomination 54 to 45. An armed man shouting anti-Trump rhetoric opened fire on police officers at the Trump National Doral Miami Golf Club in South Florida. He was shot and apprehended. Day 485, May 19. House Republicans failed to pass the omnibus farm bill in a stinging rebuke to leadership. The bill, which they wrote and is one of the most important pieces of annual legislation, collapsed because the Freedom Caucus demanded a vote on hard-right immigration policies. Trump has continued to decline to enact federally mandated sanctions on Russia. Senate Democrats today called for an investigation into why Trump is not abiding by the Katsa Act. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross used a Campbell soup can as a prop in a talk that suggested tariffs on steel and metal would not hurt American manufacturers. Later that day, Campbell's announced a projected profits loss of 5%, greater than the expected 1 to 2%. An ex-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson took a not-so-veiled shot at Trump in a speech in which he bemoaned falsehoods and a lack of integrity among American leaders. Day 486, May 20th. It was revealed that three months before the 2016 election, emissaries from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates met with Donald Trump Jr. and Blackwater head Eric Prince. The countries offered aid the Trump campaign with specific suggestions including the hiring of an Israeli specialist in social media manipulation. Trump Jr. approved of the meeting and the specialist was later paid $2 million for his work. Such interactions are illegal under federal election law. Trump Jr. has denied any such meeting took place and so has Eric Prince under oath to Congress. Robert Mueller apparently has transcripts and evidence of the meeting ratcheting up the legal peril on both. Fuming from the report that his son had met with Saudis, Trump demanded the Justice Department open an investigation into whether the department or the FBI infiltrated or surveilled his campaign at the behest of the Obama administration. Those charges are false. The FBI opened its counterintelligence investigation into Russia's efforts to influence the election and sent a retired American professor to talk to George Papadopoulos, Carter Page and Sam Clovis after receiving evidence that the trio had spoken to GRU and Kremlin-linked people. Rudy Giuliani made new claims about the special counsel Sunday, saying that Mueller was going to wrap the investigation up by September 1st. Mueller has not commented on any of Giuliani's claims, which are an attempt to pressure the counsel to wrap up the investigation swiftly. Dave Warner News 7, May 21st. The United States announced a suspension of tariffs on China following a vague statement after trade talks that claims China will increase purchases of American goods while putting in place structural changes to protect American technology. No dollar figures were announced. The Trump administration had threatened tariffs up to $150 billion and a trade war had loomed. Trump later said China would purchase all the goods that American farmers could make and more. However, the Trump administration also offered mixed signals on how significant the move was and the Secretary Secretary Steve Mnuchin had to reflect reports that he and Peter Navarro, who is Trump's trade advisor, engaged in a profanity-laced argument. Waters were further muddied when another advisor apparently went off the res and said the tariffs could still be placed on China. In a compromise after a meeting with Trump, the Justice Department referred Trump's complaints about surveillance to the Inspector General. The informant has been named as Stefan Halper, an American who was a foreign policy scholar at the University of Cambridge. Rod Rosenstein also agreed to set up a meeting where congressional leaders can review, quote, highly classified and other information they have requested related to the Russia probe. Incoming NRA President Oliver North blamed school shootings on, quote, youngsters who are steeped in a culture of violence and young boys who have been on Ritalin. They've been drugged in many cases. The Texas Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, blamed the shootings on a host of factors, including abortion, broken families, too many entrances to schools, but not guns. And new Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in his first major policy speech, said the U.S. will aim to crush Iran with economic and military pressure. Pompeo demanded that Iran halt all uranium enrichment, stop its ballistic missile program, and give nuclear inspectors access to the entire country. Day 488, May 22nd. Trump says a much touted meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may be delayed or not happen at all. The reversal came after several belligerent statements by North Korean officials that cast doubt. Trump has blamed interference by China for the shift in tone. Trump had a bizarre challenge coin minted ahead of proposed meetings with North Korea. The coin, which refers to Kim Jong-un as supreme leader, he is actually the party chairman, indicates how Trump is focused more on the pageantry of the summit. Reports indicate Trump has refused to read detailed briefings and is more interested in what the Associated Press described as suspense-filled announcements. The South Korean media is noting it is an open secret that South Korea's leaders are merely flattering Trump in an attempt to use him to achieve long-held goals. The Interior Department announced it will reverse rules to prevent hunters on public lands in Alaska from using bacon and donuts to lure brown bears. Hunters will also be allowed to use spotlights to find hibernating bears and can use motorboats to shoot caribou. And Trump reportedly is not allowing his Twitter-enabled iPhone to be checked for security threats, claiming it is too inconvenient. Trump repeatedly railed against Hillary Clinton for her carelessness with email and other digital communications. White House communication staffers who draft tweets for Trump intentionally use poor grammar and spelling errors to mimic their boss, according to a report in the Boston Globe. They deliberately use exclamation points, random capitalization of words, and fragmented sentences to make the tweets appear as if Trump actually wrote them. Day 489, May 23rd, a longtime business partner of Michael Cohen pled guilty to tax fraud as part of a deal with New York State prosecutors. Eugenie Friedman, known as the Taxi King for his fleet of cab enterprises, struck a deal allowing to plead guilty to a single count of tax fraud. He had initially been charged with grand larceny as part of a $5 million scheme to withhold state taxes. It is thought that Friedman is cooperating with the Mueller inquiry and the move puts greater pressure on Cohen to cooperate. Democratic women kept racking up wins as primary season continued. Stacey Abrams became the first African-American woman to become a major party nominee for governor after winning the Democratic primary in Georgia. Abrams won handily, but she still faces steep odds in a Georgia that has never elected a black person to the highest office. In Kentucky, fighter pilot Amy McGrath proved naysayers wrong when she upset Jim Gray, the former mayor of Lexington. Both became the latest sign of a wave of discontent sweeping across the electorate in the wake of Trump's election. And a bipartisan group of lawmakers said they will try to stop Trump from reducing penalties against ZTE, the Chinese telecom giant. Trump has said he will reduce penalties on ZTE who have been sanctioned for lying and for security breaches. The move came after the Trump organization received a $500 million investment in an Indonesian property from the Chinese government. ZTE has close ties to the Chinese power Harajaki. Marco Rubio said, quote, we will be working on a veto-proof congressional action plan. Dick Durbin concurred, said lawmakers are considering several options and plan to act soon. And Elliot Brody, a major Republican fixer who has been implicated in covering up a potential Trump sex scandal involving a pregnant Playboy playmate, received its largest US government payout while he was selling access to Trump to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Brody and George Nader, who was arrested for illicit acts with minors, locked down more than $4 million in contracts from the Department of Defense. The most his company had ever received in defense contracts prior to Brody's lobbying work had been $7,000. The EPA barred the Associated Press and CNN from a national summit on harmful water contaminants with Scott Pruitt. One AP reporter was forcibly removed from the building after asking to speak to a public affairs representative. And Trump is firing most of his communication staff in an effort to stop leaks. Trump, who is said by many to be the leaker in chief, actually believes staffers are deliberately undermining his presidency. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Divisive, Lumpen Radio's art criticism show, continued their discussion of black women in arts and film in part five of Are Black Women Fearless? Divisive, with Craig Harshaw and Leah Gibson, airs the third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m.
9: So it's not that no one was doing anything before or there were such powerful forces of white supremacy that just like no woman of color, no black woman ever made any work it's that that work has been buried and forgotten. Um, And I would say one part of that, and maybe why we do this show, is that one thing that's pretty similar from the 1950s up till now is that the critical community hasn't changed that much. Still have an awful lot of straight, cisgendered, white men controlling what we will see as quality in a contemporary sense and therefore what we will canonize. So the thing about these books written in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s is that they were pretty much, if you wanted your book reviewed, it was going to be reviewed by a white male. Um,
10: Probably a wasp.
9: Probably a wasp, probably straight. I mean, if it's earlier than that, even if he wasn't, he couldn't legally say he wasn't. Although I think if you actually study it, queer white men were sometimes the only chance a woman could get <laughs> of having a good review or a person of color it was a white man, if somebody writing for the New York Times, which still, you know, often only hires critics. They have Wesley Morris and they have everyone else. Um, at the New York Times, everyone else is white. Um, uh, their art section, entirely white males. Um, so I think that that's one thing, that the work might be a little bit different. It's not necessarily... Inventing out of nothing is the only work to be done, but an important part of the work is finding out what this archive is and what has been dealt with.
10: So um, speaking of archive, Craig, you had a quote by Michelle Wallace.
9: Yes. So this is from, and I'm doing this off my memory, which I always do. And for some reason, I almost always do this to Michelle Wallace, I think, like right before the show. Oh, yeah, I remember reading something once. But this is from Invisibility Blues. It's from the actual essay Invisibility Blues. And I do remember this um, well. I remember it well, I will say, because I worked with a group of children, uh, nine, well, nine-year-old children up to teenagers that created a piece called um, Thoughts That Do Often Lie Too Deep for Tears back in 1996, and they actually used this quote in the performance piece, and the quote is, in order to, oh, we have to remember, it's a cautionary quote, we have to remember that in order to speak for the dead, we have to silence them first. So. So on that.
10: On that note, as we look at some of these works, I think that our discovery here, and hopefully where we'll shift and move from this point, is focusing on consciousness, uh, you know, cultural consciousness, um, and sort of locating all of the the ways in which we come in contact with people's ideas. Um, uh, and I think Looking at the works that we have access to from that lens, Mm -hmm. Um, looking at black women's work and the work that has to deal with black women's lives um, as a way to answer a host of questions that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, you ready? I am. All right. Dark phrases of womanhood, of never having been a girl. Half notes scattered without rhythm, no tune. Distraught laughter fallen over a black girl's shoulder. It's funny, it's hysterical. The melody lessness of her dance. Don't tell nobody, don't tell a soul. She's dancing on beer cans and shingles. This must be the spook house, another song with no singers. Lyrics, no voices, an interrupted solo's unseen performances. Are we ghouls? Children of horror? The joke?
9: Don't tell nobody. Don't tell a soul. Are we animals? Have we gone crazy? I can't hear anything but maddening screams and the soft strains of death. And you promised me, you promised me, somebody anybody sing a black girl's song bring her out to know herself to know you but sing her rhythm, rib- her rhythms karen struggle hard times sing her song of life she's been dead so long closed in silence so long she doesn't know the sound of her own voice her infinite beauty she's half notes scattered without rhythm no tune sing her sighs Sing the song of her possibilities, sing a righteous gospel, let her be born, let her be born and handled warmly.
10: I'm outside Chicago.
9: I'm outside Detroit.
10: I'm outside Houston.
9: I'm outside Baltimore.
10: I'm outside San Francisco.
9: I'm outside Manhattan.
10: I'm outside St. Louis.
9: And this this is for colored colored girls girls who who have considered considered suicide. suicide. But, but move, move to, to the, the ends of their, their own rainbows.
10: So, this was from uh, an excerpt from Ntizange, uh Shange's um, Four Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. Sorry.
0: TechScene Chicago spoke with Christina Whitehouse, the leader of Bike Lane Uprising, a local nonprofit that mines data to help make Chicago's roadways safer. Whitehouse spoke about the dangers urban cyclists face, how big data can identify trends and make riding safer, and how cycling can help our city grow. TechScene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m.
12: Christina, welcome to the show, and uh, and what is a
13: happy National Bike to Work Day as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, today is National uh, Bike to Work Day, and uh, I'm super excited to be here.
12: Me too. We couldn't have picked a better day. I know. Well, well, let's, let's start out by hearing about what Bike Lane Uprising is.
13: Yeah, so Bike Lane Uprising is a crowdsourced project, as you mentioned, and we collect bike lane obstructions. Uh, users submit those to one central database, and from that, we're collecting qualitative and quantitative data. And just to better understand the problem of bike lane obstructions, uh, the city of Chicago has miles and miles and miles of bike lanes. However, oftentimes those bike lanes are being used as free parking.
3: mm mm-hmm.
13: And And, and how, how did the bike lane uprising get started? Did. So about two years ago, I was biking, um, and I was waiting at a red light, and I was waiting for um, you know, the light to change. I was in the bike lane, and a uh, large beer truck almost ran me over. Um, mm. I uh, tried pushing myself off of the side of the truck, and um, I got very close to going under the back wheels. I chased after the truck uh, two blocks to catch up with it. And uh, I got the driver to roll down the window. I asked them if they realized they had almost run me over. And the driver, just very stone-faced, said that, yes, he, he did know. And then he drove off again. Tried to reach out to the company. Company never let me talk to anybody. And over the course of you know the two weeks, never heard anything. Two weeks later, um, the first uh, share bike cyclist was actually killed in a very similar circumstance in Chicago. So um, obviously, this stuck with me, mm-hmm. and um, and then I started this about uh, eight months ago.
12: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and great, and uh, that that is quite quite a, a story and an interesting experience that is. Um, you know, um, galvanized this project. and But you also have a background in the tech industry in industrial and industrial and product design, right? Can, can you tell us about that, too? Yeah.
13: Um, so I have an undergrad in industrial design, so di- designing physical products. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of industrial designers also, you know, kind of dabble in the digital space. And then my master's degree is in product design and development management.
12: Hmm. That is very cool. Um, you know, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of new inventions and all things product design. Um, so that's that's good. And I, how how has that lent itself to your to your passion project, the bike lane uprising?
13: You know, one um, I would say that. I have some of the tangible skills to actually just kind of kick things off. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, maybe somebody might have to use multiple people to help with that. And if it's something that's just like a kind of guerrilla style project, it's a little more difficult to get through those barriers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, just from a mindset, um, you know, I'm I'm versed in you know uh, ethnography and you know learning mm. from users and oh. you know being very like empathetic towards that and mm-hmm. trying to design processes based on what's needed, but then also what's technically feasible and you know just how to pull all those um, pieces together. Mm-hmm.
12: And, and uh, yes, again, a very very interesting. And um, so now we're here on a show that's about tech events yet we're talking about bicycles. Uh, now, can you explain to our, our listeners how data plays a role in, in what you're doing and the high-tech aspects of that?
13: Yes. Um, I was actually very surprised when uh, you just got it right away um, when we first started talking about Bike Lane Uprising. Um, we rely heavily on um, technology to allow our users to have a safe analog experience mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting um and we use um we collect all of this data we're collecting it both quantitative and qualitative we're using photos we're using um you know like normalizing the data so that we have a good pool of data to you know capture trends mm-hmm. um from an analytical side but um, we're also, you know, using a lot of like API plugins and, you know, like, you know, designing the web for, you know, the user experience and, um, you know, working on next iteration. So in the next iteration of Bike Lane Uprising, the submission tool, it's actually going to be pulling data from the photos to allow users to, you know, have a little bit of a, um, a quicker um, experience, less processes and just autofill. Mm
3: hmm. Mm hmm.
13: And um that is that is very,
12: um, yeah. I mean, your your whole website and everything you're doing, um, you know, to, filling us in on the high tech aspects of that, is um, this is this is great to hear about. And then now, can you help our listeners um, like understand, like in your own words, what what civic tech is? Because I think that's a good characterization for what the bike lane uprising is about. Yeah. So can you help help uh, enlighten us a little bit?
13: Yeah. So. In my opinion, um, civic tech is really just technology that's good for the people, that Mm -hmm. is trying to do something for um, individuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's um, lots of different ways that people can get involved in civic tech, especially here in Chicago. We're um, very lucky to have uh, a group called Shy Hack Night uh, mm-hmm, happens mm-hmm. every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. at the Merchandise yep. Mart. And yep. super cool. You don't have to be, you know, a coder or anything like that. It's very cross-functional, mm-hmm. um, very approachable space.
12: Yeah. And D- Derek Etter was on our, our show a while back, too, yeah. um, for Shy Hack Night. And um, and a number, Adam Heckman um, was also on our show, a big supporter of Civic Tech as well yeah, uh, from from uh, Microsoft and everything. So we're um, glad that those uh, two were on the show because they talk a lot about civic tech. Um, and then um, how are how our listeners can participate in the bike lane uprising? So can you talk a little bit about what people can do to participate in your project and, and what, what that's like?
13: Yeah, um, so our data, um, I take very, very seriously um, and I try to maintain the integrity of that data. Uh, So we do require that members sign up to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, be a member. They have to get approved. Um, And from that, it allows us to um, keep them anonymous should they, you know, want to do that. Many Mm -hmm. um, members do prefer to remain anonymous. And um, it also allows us to reach out, you know, should we have any questions. There's been a lot of times that you know, like maybe some of the data might be missing or it's a little confusing, or sometimes we actually are able to work with companies that are being reported Mm. and they wanna know more information or, you know, better understand the, you know, the scene of, you know, the incident. And we've actually, you know, I've kind of been like the remediary for a couple of companies because, um, you know, they'll be trying to talk to their drivers, I'll be talking to, you know, the submitters, and we'll try to like, try to brainstorm some sort of a solution.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.